0: Hi, I'm Steve Lance, your host of the Capitol Report on NTD News. If you have not done so yet, please hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with all of the latest news coming out of the nation's capital and beyond. I was at the International Religious Freedom Summit here in Washington, D.C., where I had a chance to speak with U.S. Coast Guard Captain Daniel Mode. Mode has been a chaplain with the U.S. military for over 30 years. He served with the Navy, Marine Corps, and the Coast Guard. We discussed religious freedom in the military, and how it works in real life.
1: Here's our discussion. Captain Daniel Mode, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks, it's great to be at the Internationally Religious Freedom Summit. And on that note, uh, what brings a, a captain in our United States military uh, to this event? So um, I was asked by the organizers of the International Religious Freedom Summit to talk about what chaplains do in the sphere, especially in national security strategy, um, and how we interact uh, with religious key leader engagement. How chaplains are deployed all over the world, whether you're in the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, uh, the Marine Corps. I happen to represent the Coast Guard. I'm a Navy chaplain, and I'm serving right now as the chaplain of the Coast Guard, but i also serve with the Marines as well. So Navy chaplains serve the Marine Corps, the Navy, and the Coast Guard. And here, we have an amazing opportunity to travel throughout the world, literally to be ambassadors, if you will, of the United States, uh, a way for us, to, uh, all service members, but including chaplains, to engage uh, throughout the world to, to provide peace and stability um, and to engage with our allies and partners and hopefully strengthen those those bonds. So the unique way that chaplains can do that. How much has uh, the right of religious freedom uh, driven your work? In, in, in the United States military just dating back to our founding. Exactly, dating back to our founding. So our first freedom is freedom of religion Um, and chaplains were an integral part from the very beginning of the United States military. Uh, George Washington saw it in a great need that even if you serve your country uh, in any branch uh, you're, you're, you're not divorced from your ability to practice your faith. So chaplains are there to obviously provide. Uh, I'm a Roman Catholic priest and I provide for uh, Roman Catholics, but I also facilitate for all other religions. Um, in my 34 years, believe it or not, of being a, a chaplain, either as a chaplain candidate, a reservist, and now after duty, I've done so much to uh, facilitate for others uh, of non-Christian faith, or even of no belief, uh, how can I meet your specific religious needs or where you're at? As a senior officer in the military,
0: um, you've traveled the world. When you see and look at you know, totalitarian regimes, whether it be China or Iran, how does the way that they uh, treat their people, uh, the level of religious freedom in those countries, allow you to assess them on a, from a military standpoint?
1: So I, I don't get into the political aspects of that. Uh, obviously, we want to build relationships with all countries, uh, and we want to show what we have in the United States, our democratic values, especially our value of freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, as being a, a core uh, value that uh, I think other people will embrace, and especially in the, in the religious freedom aspect, that's where, where I play. How important is faith uh, for servicemen and women? Faith is so important uh, for all of us. Obviously there are people who, who have stronger faith, people who practice a religion, people who don't practice a religion. But everyone is searching for that, that inner uh, spirit, if you will, um, and we wanna be there to, to provide that for them. But also, let's say you don't have um, a spiritual grounding or even a religion that you belong to. Chaplains are still there for you because one of the other provisions that we do is we care for all. Um, I would say 90% of what I do on a day-to-day basis, maybe not in my senior role, but throughout being a chaplain, is just caring for the needs of each and every service member. They're coming to me not necessarily for religious needs, but just to talk about an issue in their life, maybe a problem that they've had with a family member, uh, advice and counsel, and we do that with strict confidentiality, 100% confidential. They can t- come to us any day of the week and be able to tell us their story Uh, and we don't tell that to anybody their command uh, doctors or nurses it's a free environment for them to be able to unload to decompress and hopefully we can get them the help that they they desire. And on that note what type of infrastructure or mechanisms
0: mechanisms are in place within our military uh, to to offer to folks that are looking
1: to practice their faith in the military? So well we, we tried to always establish a chapel on a base. Uh, I have mostly served in the Navy part of my maritime services. I've served at the Coast Guard Academy. I've served now as a chaplain of the Coast Guard, but the vast majority of my time has been with the United States Navy. So I've been on 49 different ships at sea deployed. I've been assigned to two aircraft carriers, the Truman and the George Washington, for extended periods of deployment, and then uh, the flagship of the Seventh Fleet, which is the USS Blue Ridge. On all of those structures, I was able to celebrate religious services, whether they had a chapel or he used a space for religious services. So imagine that, here you're in the middle of the ocean, uh, and a chaplain comes aboard, maybe flies aboard, uh, we call it the Holy Hilo, and is able to provide a religious service for you. Myself, I provide a Catholic service, but then I'm there for counsel and guidance. Uh, the Navy is working very hard and diligently right now to put a Navy chaplain on every ship, all of our destroyers, so that there can be an immediate access to a chaplain. Captain Daniel Mode, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're
0: welcome, it's great joy. And at that same event, I also had a chance to speak with Rabbi Abraham Cooper about recent instances of anti-Semitism. He'll tell us how the pandemic and social media have amplified hate. Here's a look. Rabbi Abraham Cooper, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Rabbi, we all kind of live in our own bubbles uh, day to day. We just get so busy. But Jews around the world, in the United States, millions, carry a bit of an extra burden on their back on a day to day basis because of anti-Semitism. Help us uh,
2: shine some light on this. You know, a lot of our neighbors don't realize it, even in places like L.A., Chicago, uh, Boston, New York. But it's been a long time. Uh, But it's been years where almost every synagogue, you have to go through serious security to get in and out because of the targeting of houses of worship, Uh, schools, little kids, some places like airport security. So anti-Semitism has been with us for a long time. Well, I think what's happened in the last uh, five, six years, that means even before COVID, but then amplified because of COVID, Uh, is uh, more direct attacks against Jews publicly, especially religious Jews, because they're easy targets. They stand out in the crowd. So a place like New York City, uh, which has the largest Jewish population of any city in the world, is a place now where many people fear just walking to and from synagogue or walking out in the street. Um, And it's interesting, especially in New York, because during COVID, you saw two groups, being physically attacked on the streets of New York, Jews and Asian Americans, because what's the common denominator? 24 seven subculture on social media uh, with uh, lurid conspiracy theories. Uh, You know, when you're looking to blame someone for whatever your your problems are or society's uh, problems, especially during COVID. Social media is something that um, I think is a game changer in terms of targeting of the Jewish community, but also other minorities, and um, especially when you're dealing with young people who have no collective memory, there's no online librarian, there's no filter, so and you're in the TikTok generation of 30-second sound bites. And the virality of it as well, it can just reach so many people. There's a violent attack that takes place, let's say, in Florida. That's already viral and, of course, it raises the level of anxiety and concern in our community, but also, unfortunately, it serves to inspire others to do copycat stuff. Before uh, Internet and social media, there were hate crimes. Somebody hated you or, you know, they would do a swastika in a synagogue, you knew you got hit. But on social media, the victim often doesn't even know they're being targeted. So we're, we're in a whole new, uh, you know, territory. and. You know, one other thing that we're beginning to show, um, I think, real concern about is uh, artificial intelligence being deployed by Amazon and other economic uh, behemoths. If we ever enter a new domain in our collective lives where Alphabet and Amazon and other mega companies around the world start monetizing hate. We're all in deep, deep trouble. Lastly, Rabbi, I just want to get your, uh, your thoughts on um,
0: mainstream government uh, officials, You know, for instance in the UK and in the United States Congress, um, being accused of anti-Semitic uh, comments.
2: Uh, is this a concern for you? Of course it's a concern. These are people who are supposed to be representing an objective uh, peace-building effort. Uh, especially when you're looking at the Middle East, when you have individuals who gloat over their uh, uh, hatred for the Jewish state. Uh, it's, uh, it's deeply disconcerting and the message more broadly is there's no price to pay for bigotry if the target is Jews. We're, we're here in Washington. I noticed in the last few days, especially after looks like she may be paying the price for her previous bigotry, Ilan Omar, you know when you're in Congress You're immune. Nobody can sue you for what you say. You have the bully pulpit. The only uh, ultimate arbiters about whether you should continue to have it are the voters in your district. Now, uh, she used classic anti-Semitic tropes, um, and uh, I'm sure there were many people in the United States who um, were happy that she did so. And suddenly now, when you have uh, McCarthy as the new new sheriff in town in, in the House, uh, calling that bigotry out and saying you're not going to be on the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, suddenly you have, oh, what I said, I didn't know that uh, it's all about the Benjamins, baby. Was was that an anti-Semitic? Oh, I, I wasn't aware of that. Well, do I look like Santa Claus? So, you know, let's talk about plausible deniability here. What should have happened with Ilan Omar and others is to simply say, I'm reflecting on what I said. I blew it. I own it and I want to open a new page in a new chapter not to read a script uh, from someone that's a classic deflection it's there's a difference between responsibility and deflection we need more leaders who show more responsibility and we also need uh, the legacy media to wake up and when these things happen they're just to call it out for what it is and you see very often there's a hesitation there what's going on on campuses in the United States, uh, where it's supposed to be a safe uh, uh, haven for the exchange of ideas and to protect the minorities. Rabbi Abraham Cooper, thank you so much. Thank you.
0: I just want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our content, please leave us a rating and a review, as it really goes a long way in helping us spread the truth. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve Lance at NTD, and we'll see you soon.